Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. It has been an absolutely glorious week where I live. The weather has been perfect, capital P, makes you want to get out and fish. And so I actually did that. I got out and fished, which I'll be talking about later. But today, I wanted to do something that I haven't done in a long time. And part of it is because a lot of people do it. And I guess really that's the only reason. I only don't share like fishing tips and tricks consistently on the podcast because a lot of people do it. Now, I do over at castingcross.com and articles, but they're short. I mean, most of my articles are between 500 and 700 words. That's like a five to 10 minute read. Very, very quick. But, you know, half an hour, that's a lot of content when it comes to hashing out the intricacies of a particular fly fishing skill or tactic or technique. But that being said, I was thinking about one area of fly fishing that I really enjoy and how sometimes some of the lesser known and lesser utilized skills within dry fly fishing are not heralded enough. If you think that fishing a dry fly is simply casting upstream, quartering away from you, and letting that fly dead drift such that the fish that you have spotted that is rising will eat, then you're only getting a piece of the puzzle. Those are fun opportunities. I mean, it's that prototypical dry fly situation where that fish is in front of you and the water is going across you and you can cast upstream and it can float downstream and it's just this perfect little situation with very few wonky variables but there's other things you can do and there's other things that you should be doing so i want to talk about three of those today and the first is something that i have mentioned before but i think it bears mentioning again and that is a dry dry dropper a dry dry dropper What's a dry, dry dropper? We all know about dry nymph, hopper dropper, all of those things. Dry, dry is maybe not a technical term. Maybe there's a better word for it, but it is when you have a dry fly with another dry fly behind it. Now, it is totally acceptable, assuming local regulations allow things like this, to have two big puffy dry flies and cast them and double your chances. I don't usually do that. Uh, makes casting wonky because you have two things that have a little bit more wind resistance and so it can make things get extra tangly as tangly as nymph rigs get if you ever try to cast two big puffy dry flies or two big wind resistant flies um, it, it doesn't go as well 
But when I employ this tactic is a few reasons. The first one is when I am fishing a teeny tiny nymph and I am very far away from my target. So I don't mind fishing those 24, 26s. If I'm within 25 feet of my target, it makes it very easy to see that fly, especially if there's a glare on the water, if there's a little bit of a chop on the water. It's it's not easy by a stretch of the imagination. I should, you know, re back up my steps uh, and not say that it's an easy thing. It's just easier. You can still see the disturbance in the water. You can see where your tippet kind of goes. So you have an idea of where your teeny tiny midge, whether it's on the surface or just in the surface is. And so when you have that gentle sip, you have confidence that when you're setting the hook, that you're setting your hook and you're not pulling your hook across the face of a fish that is just actively feeding on midges as they are wont to do. But once you get further away, once you see a fish that you can't reach either because it's spooky or because you just can't wade there or for whatever reason that's, you know, 30, 40 feet out and you're not going to be able to see that teeny tiny midge. And again, you, you think about how fish that feed on midges often feed. They're cluster feeding. They're going up and they're sipping and sipping and sipping. They're not necessarily the fish that is sitting in a lane, rising, going down, waiting, rising, going down, waiting. They're fish that are kind of going around and they're sipping a number of different midges in one kind of cluster. And so what do I do? I am happy to take that size 26 midge, take some 7x tippet, run two to three, maybe even four feet off the back of a hook of a smaller indicator fly, like maybe a, even a size like 18 parachute atoms. And that rig is not going to be super wind resistant. Uh, if anything, actually, I find that if you do this and you're making those long casts and you have a stiffer five weight or even a six weight, that having that other fly on there, that bigger quote unquote indicator fly, it doesn't have to be, it could be any sort of dry fly, uh, it doesn't have to have a post, but I tend to think that a smaller fly with a post is better than a larger fly without a post if you're using it really as an indicator for a smaller dry fly. But having that larger fly on there makes casting that stiffer rod um, or that heavier rod a little bit easier to making a good presentation with that virtually weightless fly at a distance. So you're basically casting that 18 fly as opposed to that 28 fly. Now, could this be sacrilege to some people? Absolutely, but it works. It works really well, especially if you are able to cast with some accuracy, you're able to allow that second fly to straighten out, and you've got to be careful to not put too long of a tag between your first fly and your second fly if this is the case, but you make a good cast, that second fly is able to get out there, and you know that if there is a rise two or three feet past your indicator fly, that's probably yours. Or having that indicator fly gives you an opportunity to have a visual cue to your smaller dry fly which is out past it so you are able to hone in on where that is quicker you're able to follow that tag little bit of tippet in the glare or the disturbance of the surface of the water and you're able to see the dimple of where your teeny tiny fly is even though you're further away from it it's a really great approach now this is a similar thing you can do this with a merger or one of the things i really like to do with this rig is i will fish two dry flies and I won't put floating on the second one. So if fish are doing weird stuff and they're splashing kind of funny when they rise and they're just not acting like prototypical splashing or sipping uh, rises, then I will take say a size 18 blooming olive and then like an 18 
CDC blooming olive off the back of that, but I won't put any floating on that second one. And you know, there's there's good floating you can use on the CDC, but what I'm saying is that I won't add anything to it or I won't dry it off once it starts to get a little bit soggy. So it's not a true emerger, but it's sitting much more flush in the surface of the water. And by casting and by being held up by that first fly, it's going to not get so waterlogged that you're going to need to necessarily dry it off using any sort of product. So that's my first kind of dry fly tactic is using a dry, dry dropper situation. I guess the dropper would be the dry. So the dry dropper dry, I don't even know how you would say it. I'm sure there's this is out there and there's books on it, whatever, but this is what I do. Definitely check it out. A dry fly with a dry fly behind it. Just don't make them two size 12 humpies. I mean, you could do that, but I wouldn't do it. Okay, second thing is the pile cast, aka the puddle cast, aka the parachute cast, aka casting so that there is slack line downstream. So don't fish dry flies downstream. Why? Because the fish rises, its mouth is open, so when you set the hook, it's coming straight out. Well, Yes and no. I've caught so many fish, fishing dry flies downstream. And sometimes it is the most effective way to approach a fish based upon its feeding lie. You just need to be very conscientious that you have to wait an extra beat. And I can't describe what that is. And really it does depend on the type of rise of a fish. I mean, if you have a fish that's swirling at things, it's going to set itself because it's coming from downstream and it's coming up and around that fly for all intents and purposes, it's going to set itself. There's no problem with that. But for a fly that's doing a prototypical rise, coming up, mouth wide open, you see that white, man, you see the white of an open fish mouth, and you have to wait to set the hook. That's a difficult thing, but you have to do that if you're fishing downstream. So with that all said, why use a pile cast? And well, first, what is a pile cast? A pile cast is effectively achieved by casting your line up high as you go to make your presentation and then dropping the tip of your rod down low, which effectively pulls that line down. So if you can imagine it's moving away from you at an upward trajectory rather than at a level trajectory. And so when you pull your rod tip down, as long as you're not shooting a ton of line out, and even if you're shooting a little bit of line out, as you pull that rod tip down, that's going to kind of pull back on that line as it is unrolling at an upward trajectory, and it's going to come down not in a straight line, because we all cast in straight lines all the time, am I right? Anyway, it's not going to come down in a straight line, it's going to come down kind of in a pile. Now, if you do it at the right time, your line is going to be primarily what gets puddled up between you and your fly. Your leader and your fly hopefully have enough energy in them that they are going to straighten out. This takes practice. This is a cast that takes practice, and it takes practice on the water. You're really not going to be able to see if you're doing this well on your grass. You can mess around with it, but doing this live is the best way to figure out how to do it. That's a great way to present to fish that are downstream because now, you know, think about it, you make a 25-foot cast downstream, how long of a drift do you have? If you're fishing truly downstream, even at a 15, 30, 45-degree angle to either side of you, how much of a drift are you going to have? Not a lot because if it's a decent cast, your line's going to be relatively tight. So accommodating for you moving your arm and your rod a little bit, you might have like a 2, 3, 
four or five foot drift, and that's not enough to get a good presentation to a fish. So doing this, you're going to have a lot of line that's uncoiling and kind of unpiling and unpuddling and moving downstream towards your destination. So what does this mean? This means that you have to be quick with that left hand and making sure that you are taking up any slack very, very quickly if that fish is going to take, and your hook set is going to have to accommodate how much line there is between you and that fish. You know, oftentimes you have a relatively tight connection between your rod tip and your fly, but in this situation you might have some slack, and so you have to be very, very Johnny on the spot, but do it. It gives you opportunities to come at fish that are downstream in a rhododendron tunnel um, that you can't make an upstream cast because it's just so tight. Or if you're in a spring creek and the weeds are just overhanging like crazy, this is a great way to get flies under bridges, get flies into culverts, do all sorts of things that otherwise seem very, very difficult to actually make a traditional cast to. Now, I will say that you can kind of do the poor man's pile cast, and this is something I do if I only need a few extra feet of presentation. I'll make a normal cast, but I will make it short of my destination by a good 4 to 10 feet. But I will also have extra slack line between my stripping guide and my reel, so by my, my non-casting hand. And as soon as my line and fly hit the water, I will wag my fly rod back and forth and strip out that uh, four, six, eight, ten feet of line and create a couple of big, swervy S's in my fly line right at the tip of my rod. So I drop my rod tip low after my cast. I go back and forth, and the tension of the water pulls out that line. And so it was a normal cast. And now I just have a little bit of a longer drift. So it's not as pretty, it's not as professional, it is not as fancy as a pile cast, but it accomplishes the same thing if you only need a little bit of line or if you can't make that high trajectory cast where you are dropping your rod tip down. So pile cast is a great way to make a downstream presentation, but it's something I, I think that you need to really practice on the water making the cast and then just learn that discipline of setting the hook at the right time. Not when the fish rises, but when you need to set the hook. And there's really no great way to explain that on a podcast. It's, it's You gotta do it, and you're gonna mess it up. I mess it up, everybody messes it up. But there are great chances to get at fish that you couldn't otherwise get at if you're able to become proficient at making downstream presentations with dry flies. Alright, so we talked about the dry dropper situation. We talked about a pile cast, and the third one is skating Dry flies, skating dry flies. So this is where I'm going to go completely non-traditional and fly by the seat of my pants just by, just by what I do. So there are flies that are designed for skating. There's spider flies and skating flies and all those things. And effectively what they are is flies with lots of long hackle that allow that fly to ride high enough on the water that the body is not going to get pulled down in, which would cause the fly to submerge both on the presentation, but then the next time you cast it, it's going to be waterlogged and it's not going to do what you want it to do, which is to skate across the top of the water. Now, you might see this happening a lot with folks fishing for Atlantic salmon, for all of the Atlantic salmon fishing that you're watching, uh, but there's other 
traditional applications for skating. And this could be an entire podcast on its own. Um, I know South Central Pennsylvania guys did skating with uh, some uh, really cool patterns that they created. Um, But again, this is kind of a, a salmon thing, but then a lot of trout fishers do this. And what is it? You are making a retrieve with a dry fly. You're pulling a dry fly across the surface so that it will trigger a strike. Again, this is so far from a dead drift, but there's bugs that do this. And there's fish that don't care what bugs do. They're going to see something making a disturbance on the surface. They may very well think that your size 18 BWO that you are pulling up to cast again is a food that they've never seen before, but it's a food and they're a fish and they're happy to go after it. I mean, that's the thing about fly fishing. You've got these animals that more often than not just want to eat something. So we overthink it sometimes. And you think about everybody who's casting a MEPS spinner or a jitterbug who's catching fish. And then you get over to fly fishing and we think it should be so delicate and so kind of gentle and finesse. But man, people catch trout from all sorts of creeks. Poachers are catching trout, dragging, you know, wacky worms uh, through the, the, the same spring creeks that we fish. So why do we think that it has to be the teeny tiny, perfectly uh, proportioned, uh, nice little winged dry fly? No, sometimes you can mix it up a little bit. You never know what fish are going to do. I've seen spring creek fish acting totally dumb and stalkers that are not going to open their mouth if you give them a, a tiny little filet mignon on a hook. So you skate a dry fly because it just gives a different presentation. You see grasshoppers that move across the water. You see caddis that are flittering and trying to get away. Uh, You see all sorts of different bugs that are actually doing this. And then there's a whole just attractor approach where this is something moving. So how do you do this? You can do it a lot of different ways. I like to cast directly across from me, uh, across the stream, and then raise my rod tip and pull in the slack at the same time with my non-casting hand. So raising the rod tip and pulling line in at a kind of commensurate pace so that I'm maintaining that tight contact with that fly. Because although that fly is moving, I do want to set that hook as soon as I get any sort of uh, action on it. Because you're not stripping it in really, really fast like a mouse where you need to let it kind of sit and chill and let that fish hook itself. You're pulling it kind of quickly across the stream, but you're not making a a big uh, furrow in the water. You're making a nice, delicate wake. Something that a critter of that size would make. And so what do I use to do this? We can use anything. You put in a float on a, on a fly and it's going to skitter across the surface. I mean, you see this, as I mentioned before, have you ever had a fish take as you are pulling your dry fly up to your back cast? That happens all the time. Fish will take the nymphs as they rise up through the water and they will take the dries as they skate across the surface because they're just fish looking for food. So I like to use buggier stiffer hackled dry flies. If you can get stiff hackle, uh, you can tie flies that are going to ride on the tips of the hackle much, much longer than if the hackle is uh, very, very delicate, which we traditionally use for the dry flies that were just dead drifting. Uh, Also, flies that have elk hair or deer hair, both as the wing or the body, are very, very good for this because they are not going to absorb as much water. They're also generally a little bulkier, so they're going to give you a better wake as you strip them in. 
So you can do this with anything, but you can get buggier flies that are going to have more prominent hackles. And even if you were to use something like think like a pattern like the Renegade. Now traditionally the Renegade is uh, you know it's two hackles with a peacock body, I'm pretty sure, in the middle there. And usually it's tied with a soft hackle. But if you tied it with a when I say soft hackle, I don't mean like the style of fly the soft hackle, but just like a traditional dry fly hackle. But if you either tie it with a little bit of stiffer hackle or you do more wraps so it's a more tight, compact hackle on the front by the eye of the hook and the back at the uh, end of the shank of the hook, then you're going to have a fly that's going to sit up nice and high. You don't really need a tail. You really just need something that's going to float. So I'll actually tie what look like, I mean, I think it's probably really getting close to spider flies, which have nothing to do with the actual arachnid, the spider, but they almost look like Griffith gnats with really buggy hackle all the way palmered from the hook eye to the, the bend of the hook with maybe just wire or tinsel or something to get a little bit of color in the sun. But the idea is to have something that just floats high, doesn't sink, presents a profile up on the surface and creates a moderate to minor wake as you pull it across. This is a great way to catch trout. It's a great way to catch panfish. Probably catch all sorts of stuff doing this, but it's just a fun way to mix up your dry fly fishing and maybe coax some fish that are going to respond in a predatory and kind of impulsive manner as opposed to just chilling, waiting for that perfect thing to float down to them. All right. There's three dry fly tactics. There are countless more, so we'll probably have another go at this sometime in the near future. But try out that dry with a dry dropper. Try skating flies and try the downstream pile cast, puddle cast, um, slack line cast. You'll be very, very pleased as you incorporate those things into your trout fishing tactics. This week on Casting Across, the first article on Monday was called The Woods Should Be a Little Scary. The Woods Should Be a Little Scary. And I was reminded of the fact that we all have a first time to do things that are either a little bit more challenging or we're doing things that are normal, but we do them by ourselves as I was camping with my boys. And so I talked about that and how, you know, if we're not putting ourselves into situations that not not like being afraid, but we have fear, a good, healthy fear, which really moves more towards respect than anxiety, if that makes sense. So a good, healthy fear is more about respect than anxiety. So if we're not putting ourselves in the situation where we have to face those good, healthy fears, you know, we're not really living adventurously. We are in the comfort of a virtual world, which is just so present and common today. And unfortunately, so many of our kids only know that. The risks they take are easily fixed by restarting their game. So that is, again, called The Woods Should Be a Little Scary. Second article uh, came out on Wednesday called Reading the Water Out Loud. And I had a situation this week, went out fishing, like I said, because the weather is just phenomenal. I uh, just walked out into the surf, started casting, and then after like four or five casts, I'm like, what in the world am I doing? And I said that out loud. And then I said to myself, if you want to catch, you got to walk over there. And I walked over there and I caught stripers. And whether you are reminding yourself out loud or in your head, you need to listen to your good common fishing sense. Don't do what's easy. Do what's right. Do what you need to do to catch fish. So this is an article about reading the water really more than anything and how sometimes because of lethargy or because of convenience, we don't go to the right place. So check this one out, reading the water out loud. 
And you know what? I talk to myself more when I'm fishing than any other time, except for when I'm sitting in front of this microphone. I guess that probably counts as talking to myself the most in my week. This week's recommendation on casting across is actually a recurring theme. I've talked about this a few times since the COVIDs came, and I'm going to circle back to it, which is patronize your local fly shop. And here's here's the small kind of goal, I would say. 25 bucks. Walk in, make $25 worth of purchases. That is a handful of flies. That is a few liters. That might be a hat. That could be, you know, the fly tying materials you need that you're almost out of or because you want to try something new. You want to find some hackles that are a little bit stiffer so you can tie a skating fly. Do that at your local fly shop. Walk in there as as long as they allow you to do that. Wear your mask if, if they are requiring you to do that. And uh, go in and buy a few things. Encourage them by your presence and by your patronage because uh, these things are important as more and more businesses are feeling the crunch as this thing continues. So support your local fly shop, even if it's small. Hey, if you need a rod, buy a rod, but 25 bucks is better than no bucks. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. Four in the morning. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.